Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. The story of the Phillip Island murder was never a simple one. When hearing about the case, there are brief moments where things make sense. But those moments are like a house of cards. Knock one and the rest fall down. Or at least wobble. Watching forensic shows on television, you could be forgiven for thinking that science always has the answers. In reality, it doesn't or the answers just add more to the mystery. In episode 6, Vicky Petratus details the post-mortem examination of Beth Barnard's body. Please be advised that this episode contains details some listeners may find distressing. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The body of Beth Barnard was discovered on Tuesday the 23rd of September 1986 by Donald Cameron after his brother Fergus had urged him and their brother-in-law Ian Cairns to go and check on Beth, the woman Fergus was having an affair with. Fergus wanted Donald and Ian to tell Beth about a violent argument he'd had the night before with his wife Vivian Cameron. Beth Barnard lay where she died for many hours while the police processed the crime scene around her, photographing her and the bedroom and her house. In essence, a body becomes a piece of evidence, and the preservation of the crime scene is paramount. It trumps any dignity that might otherwise be afforded a victim. Once the crime scene was processed, the body was removed and taken to the mortuary at the Corumburra District Hospital. I feel like I need to begin this episode with a warning. As a crime writer, I never gratuitously describe any injuries inflicted on a person. It was this case that taught me that. These crime scene photos were the first I'd ever seen. As I looked at the photos for the first time and saw the damage that had been done to Beth Barnard, 
I realised that part of being a crime writer was to look beyond the horror and find the meaning. The injuries inflicted on a victim speak volumes about the intent of the killer, and that is why they must be detailed in true crime. Detailing injuries accurately can also help people close to the victim. When I first interviewed a friend of Beth's back when I was writing the book, it was just after I'd spoken to forensic pathologist Dr David Ranson, who'd suggested that Beth would have succumbed to her injuries quickly. He estimated around five minutes. I shared this with Beth's friend, and she let out this rush of breath and tears came to her eyes, and she said... All these years, I've imagined her lying there for hours, calling to us, and we weren't there. Our imaginations can sometimes inflict wounds worse than reality, so to know the truth can sometimes bring relief. But I'm also fully aware that the victims I write about have friends and families, and if this was someone I loved, I would want the chance to make a decision on whether or not I wanted to hear the details. Some of this episode will deal with the injuries inflicted on Beth and her post-mortem examination. If you knew Beth or loved her, you might choose to skip that part. On Wednesday morning, the 24th of September, the investigating officers all resumed their various tasks. After working late the night before at the scene of the murder, crime scene examiner Brian Gamble was back on deck early. He and his team attended the San Remo police station to inspect the Cameron's land cruiser that had been found near the bridge the previous afternoon. The team was comprised of fellow crime scene examiner Sergeant Huey Peters, Senior Constable Peter Gates from the photographic section and Sergeant Michael Rylan and Senior Constable Stephen Jones from the fingerprint branch. Peter Gates took a series of photographs of the Land Cruiser, one showing the vehicle with a view of its number plate and the hay bale looking crooked and hanging over the edge of the tray. A couple of photos showed the inside of the Land Cruiser with various items strewn around, and the final photograph showed a close-up of one of the Land Cruiser's tyres. The impression would later be compared with plaster casts taken from Beth Barnard's driveway. When the photographer had finished, Brian Gamble collected, labelled and bagged the brown towel found on the floor of the Land Cruiser, a black handbag from the passenger seat and a large black-handled knife that had lain beside the towel on the floor. He bagged the face washer found on the seat next to the black handbag. Gamble also collected two packets of Claridge brand cigarettes and a box of matches from the dashboard above the steering wheel. The fingerprint experts Rylan and Jones dusted the Land Cruiser for fingerprints. No distinguishable prints were found, but that wasn't surprising because the Land Cruiser was dusty and it had been locked up in the sun. Fingerprints are made up of water, salt and fats. Warm temperatures outside are magnified within a closed vehicle and the fingerprint experts noted that the car was quite warm inside. If fingerprints are exposed to a warm or hot environment, they can quite literally dry up. At 9.30am, the crime scene examination team returned to Beth's house to finish up their work there. 
Brian Gamble collected two pieces of evidence from near the telephone on the kitchen bench, a notepad and some cigarette butts from an ashtray there. The notepad would be forensically examined. Although there was no writing on the top page, indentations of words from earlier pages would reveal that Beth had been working on what looked like a work budget. She had also written out a shopping list and she'd written two reminders to herself, post Denise's letter and ring Marie about dinner on Saturday night. The cigarette butts near the kitchen phone were Claridge, the brand smoked by Vivian Cameron. The cigarette butt found in an ashtray in the bathroom, where the killer had apparently washed up, was a different brand, Peter Stuyvesant. Rylan and Jones tested the telephone for prints and found none that were for any use in identification. Peter Gates photographed all of the tyre impressions in the long driveway of the Barnard farmhouse. Brian Gamble later concluded from the plaster casts he made of the tyre impressions that they could have been made with a vehicle fitted with Dunlop SP road gripper tyres. At 11.50am, the crime scene examination team went to the home of Fergus and Vivian Cameron. Brian Gamble sketched a plan of the house and surrounding areas. Inside, he noted the blood splatters around the house and especially when he walked through the doorway of the spare room. His notes read, I then entered the front spare bedroom. The doorway to this bedroom led from an area near the eastern end of the central hallway. The furniture consisted of a double bed with the head of the bed positioned up against the room's southern wall. Also against the southern wall was a wardrobe. In the northwestern corner of the room was a chest of drawers, a bookcase and a desk and chair. Scattered over the bed were a number of papers. I observed a number of bloodstains in the room. On the floor between the western side of the bed and the western wall were a number of blood droplets. On the bedspread and papers on the bed were a number of blood droplets. On the front of the chest of drawers was a blood smear. These droplets fit with Fergus Cameron's statement. At this stage, I was standing between the dining room and a hallway in the doorway itself. I turned and walked to the bedroom at the top of the house and sat on the bed. The blood also matches Marnie Cann's description of what she saw when she came to babysit while Fergus and Vivian were at the hospital. She says in her statement, I had a look around the house and saw blood on the bed in the spare room. Except when it was analysed, the blood on the floor of the spare room was Vivian's blood type. The bedspread doesn't appear in the final scientific item list, so we're not sure whose blood that was. And the paper on the bed, item 23, had a smear of Beth's blood type on it. I'm going to jump forward a bit here for clarification. Even though DNA wasn't used in 1986, three people bled that night and all of them had different blood types in the old ABO system which was used at the time with a PGM subgroup. Vivian Cameron was type A, Fergus Cameron was type O PGM21 and Beth Barnard was type O PGM1. I'll explain this later in greater detail 
but I figured it would be helpful to know this now. It's important to note that finding Beth's blood type in the Cameron's spare room won't count as meaningful evidence as far as the police are concerned. The piece of paper, which according to scientific notes made during analysis, was headed HIVAR XL Information Sheet. HIVAR XL is a heavy-duty herbicide. A second sheet, which doesn't appear to have any blood staining, was labelled Shell Herbicide. This sheet of paper might have been handled by Beth in the course of her work around the farm. She might have cut herself and smeared her blood on it at any time. So just because it's there doesn't mean it means anything. Still, it's a blood-smeared piece of paper sitting on a blood-smeared bedspread in a room with a blood-splattered floor, which is why it was collected for analysis in the first place. When Peter Gates photographed the bed in the Cameron's spare room, something else was worth noting. The spare bed was positioned in a corner and it buttered walls on two sides, leaving just two sides to sit on. There are papers and what looks like a leather zip folder all along the edge and only a small space in the far corner was not covered by papers and folders. I turned and walked to the bedroom at the top of the house and sat on the bed. The papers don't look creased as if someone has sat on them, nor does the bedspread look as if someone has sat down, which suggests that if Fergus did sit on the bed, he must have moved the papers then either put them back along the perimeter of the bed, then straightened the bedspread. Or someone else did. Police photographer Peter Gates took photographs of the outside of the Cameron house, then inside the kitchen area, a close-up of a packet of Claridge brand cigarettes on the kitchen bench, a knife and sponge in the kitchen sink, bloodstains in the hallway and spare bedroom, the bathroom and the pink blood-stained tissue that Fergus said he'd used to stem the blood flow from his cut ear, bloodstains on the floor in the bathroom, bloodstained clothing in the laundry, and also the Cameron's Holden Kingswood with its blood-stained front passenger seat. Interestingly, the smear of blood was on the right side of the seat, while Fergus's back and ear injuries were both on the left side. One thing Gamble did not find in his examination of the Cameron house was the blood-stained broken glass that Marnie said she and Ian discovered and cleaned on the Monday night while Vivian and Fergus were at the hospital. When I interviewed Brian Gamble back when I was writing the book, I asked him about the glass and he told me that he would have been given a narrative of what had happened and he would have been looking for evidence to support that. I asked him if he would have checked bins. He said to me, if the glass had have been there, he would have collected it. No glass was collected. The fact that Vivian and Fergus never admitted what happened at the hospital, as well as the lack of glass found at the scene, has led people to question the attack. I've spent years thinking about this case and I could never quite imagine someone smashing a wine glass into the side of someone else's head. It seems an odd choice of weapon. It also seems unlikely that you could attack someone with a wine glass and not suffer cuts yourself. 
Remember what Fergus said in his statement. Vivian was not injured at all, and at no time was she struck. Three medical professionals at the hospital, nurses Lisa Price and Susan Bishop, and Dr Alan Powles, all saw Vivian, and none reported her bleeding or with wounds to her hands. Crime scene examiner Brian Gamble collected the pink tissues from the Cameron's bathroom, stained with Fergus's blood, and the clothes from the laundry basket. He also took a scraping of blood from some droplets near the shower and toilet. Gamble collected the sponge and knife from the kitchen sink. At 1.55pm, police photographer Peter Gates took several pictures of Fergus Cameron's injuries. He captured a front shot of Fergus, a side view of his injured ear, and a view of the lacerations on his back, which had been stitched at the hospital two nights earlier. Mid-afternoon, Brian Gamble and Peter Gates attended the post-mortem examination of Beth Barnard at the Corumburra District Hospital. It was Gamble's job to collect forensic evidence, such as Beth's nightshirt and her underwear, as well as forensic samples removed from the body for testing. It was Peter Gates's job to photograph the injuries sustained by Beth on the night of her murder. Homicide detective Rory O'Connor attended the post-mortem examination too. Before he set off for the Corumburra District Hospital, O'Connor rang Sergeant Jeff Frost from the police search and rescue. When the Land Cruiser was found fairly close to the Phillip Island Bridge, the possibility that Vivian Cameron could have jumped meant the water would have to be searched by sea and air. Frost told O'Connor that his squad could only search the water under the bridge for 20 minutes at a time when the tide would be at its lowest ebb. Jeff Frost knew that after an initial drifting period where air is expired from the lungs, a body literally becomes a dead weight and sinks to the bottom of a waterway. After a body has been in the water for around four days, an enzyme reaction, which is part of decomposition, fills the body with gases and it floats to the surface. After two days, if Vivian had have drowned after jumping from the bridge, it's likely her body would be submerged. Frost was confident that if Vivian Cameron had jumped from the bridge, there was a good possibility that even if he didn't find her, he would find something, her glasses, the boots she'd been wearing, or her scarf. Frost told O'Connor he'd be up the next morning with a crew of divers. At 3pm on Wednesday the 24th of September, a regional pathologist, Dr Anderson, performed the post-mortem examination on Beth Barnard. Detectives Rory O'Connor, Alan McFadden and crime scene examiner Brian Gamble and photographer Peter Gates viewed the examination. Even by the early 1990s, when I was interviewing people for the Phillip Island book, experts told me that by then the post-mortem examination would have been done in Melbourne and different procedures and tests would have been carried out. But in 1986, regional hospitals would do these cases locally. Since murder is relatively rare, the experience of most regional pathologists on numbers alone would not have been as extensive as their city colleagues. 
I'm not detracting from the work Dr Anderson did at all, but perhaps if Beth's post-mortem examination was performed in the city, they might have done things like examining tissue from the A carved into her chest to see if it was done after she died. It would have been a very different crime if it was done before she died. One would imagine that whatever the regional pathologist's experience, it probably didn't include examining letters of the alphabet carved into homicide victims. Rory O'Connor remembered this to be the case. Were you at the autopsy? Yep. Neon, let's see the autopsy. Who did it? I think his name, he hadn't done too many. Ah, yes, Dr Anderson. Unfortunately, he wasn't a very experienced coroner. We had to tell him what to do from go to one. Unfortunately, we couldn't get the body back to Melbourne. It was done in Monthaggy. If it had been done down here, um, we'd probably find out a lot more about the body. But but it it doesn't really... It's not going to alter anything, if you know what I mean. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At the post-mortem examination, the body is washed and presented on a metal table. Washed clean of the swirls of blood smears, Beth's body looked white. The injuries stood out, especially the huge letter A. The procedure begins with an external examination where the pathologist notes down injuries before he opens the body to see the damage wrought internally. Dr. Anderson began his external examination. For clarity, I'm going to leave out some of the positional terms he used that only an expert might be familiar with. His notes read, Young woman showing multiple stabbing and slashing wounds as follows. The throat shows a gaping slash wound 11 centimetres wide and 6.5 centimetres deep in the fold between the chin and the upper part of the neck extending three centimetres from the base of the right ear and four centimetres from the base of the left. The pharynx has been completely severed just above the larynx, as has the right carotid artery, but not the left. Some of the cervical vertebrae are exposed at the base of the wound. The skin along the lower border of the wound is intermittently jagged, suggesting multiple cuts rather than a single slash. The upper lip shows a full thickness slash wound around three centimetres long, extending toward but not reaching the right nostril. The left corner of the mouth shows a slash three centimetres long running toward the angle of the jaw, a further slightly curving slash wound 2.5 centimetres long is present under the point of the chin. 
The upper chest shows a gaping stab wound 4.5 centimetres long over the right first rib. A further smaller gaping wound, 2 times 1.5 centimetres, is situated over the third rib. The lower chest shows a series of slash wounds forming an A-shape with a point of the A directed toward the head. The right side of the A consists of a deep slash wound 25 centimetres long, two shorter, much shallower slashes which have not completely penetrated the skin run parallel and very close to the deep slash. The left side of the A consists of a slash 29 centimetres long. Three shorter, much shallower slashes run parallel and adjacent to it. The centre bar of the A consists of a horizontal slash 18 centimetres long. The left forearm shows a 1.2 centimetre long gash 5 centimetres below the elbow crease. A 4.5 centimetre shallow scratch lies below it. The left thumb shows a deep gash in its web. All four fingers of the left hand show deep gashes. The right arm shows a short gash 1.5 centimetres long. There are slashes across the palm side of the right index, middle and ring fingers. There's also a small slash 1.5 centimetres long on the left ankle. Once Dr. Anderson had completed and documented the external appearance, he did the internal examination where the body was opened with a Y incision. In the internal examination, the pathologist found that the brain appeared normal, same for the kidneys and bladder. There was no sign of pregnancy, the heart appeared normal, and apart from the stab wound which had filled her right pleural cavity with blood, the lungs appeared normal too. The pathologist collected scrapings beneath all of the fingernails and took external and internal vaginal and anal swabs. He collected a specimen of muscle from the thigh and 10 mils of blood from the right pleural cavity. He handed these specimens to police. Perhaps of all the wounds, it was the huge letter A carved into Beth Barnard's chest and stomach that stood out the most. I remember when I first spoke to Rory O'Connor on the phone to see if I could come in and talk to him about this case. We got talking about the A and Rory asked me if I knew what it stood for. I told him it reminded me of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, which I'd read as part of the syllabus when I majored in literature at uni. The main character of the Scarlet Letter, set in the mid-1600s, was a woman called Hester Prynne who had a baby out of wedlock in Puritan, Massachusetts. For her sin, Hester was condemned to adorn her clothes with the scarlet letter A for the rest of her life, marking her as an adulteress. In the story, it is only the woman who's publicly branded. The father of Hester's baby remains in the shadows and is only illuminated publicly at the end of the story. After the Philip Island murder book came out, I spoke to Vivian's sister Deirdre and she told me that Vivian had read The Scarlet Letter at school. Did you see that book in um, Vivian? No. Oh, yeah. Who told us? One of them told us, yeah. 
I'd have heard some statements. One of them told us about it. Said she read it. Now, whether it went in the actual statement or we just made it, made a note of it and checked it out. No, well, she did it at school. Well, apparently at school. A for adulterous has always been the most likely meaning of the A, even though by definition, adultery is when a married person has sex with someone else, making the married person the adulterer. Beth wasn't married, so while she was the other person, she wasn't technically an adulteress. But I guess the killer took a knife rather than a dictionary to McPhee's road that night. Over the years, people have wondered if the A might stand for something else. A name, an initial, a symbol, a message. It's something we may never know for sure. Even though the A is the most prominent of Beth's injuries, it was a small stab wound near her right collarbone that would have proven fatal all on its own. So would the wound to her neck. When I was first researching the Phillip Island murder for the book, I spoke to Dr David Ranson at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, or VIFM if you're in a hurry. About a decade ago, I met him again when we did a panel together for Forensic Week. VIFM took over parts of the old Melbourne jail and had information booths set up in jail cells on subjects that would delight true crime enthusiasts but perhaps horrify everyone else. Nowadays, Professor David Ranson is the Deputy Director of the Forensic Services Division at VIFM. Just like he was nearly 30 years ago when I interviewed him, David is as helpful today, always happy to explain the field of forensics to the non-expert. The stab injuries, uh, one of which obviously um, certainly goes on to cause significant internal injuries going through the superior inner cava, and obviously the one across the neck is the one that's dealing with the um, uh, damage to the carotid and so on. And then there are a series of defensive-type injuries to hands and the arms, and they're fairly classic for defensive injuries. David Ranson will discuss possibilities of what might have happened and in which order during the attack on Beth based on the evidence and photographs, but he's quick to point out that this can only ever be supposition. I mean, what that means, I don't know. You're reconstructing something that you really can't reconstruct in one way. It's just too complicated. Examining the crime scene photos, it appears likely the attack happened while Beth was in bed. If someone crept into her room while she was asleep and landed the first blow to the chest, that would have proven fatal, but not straight away. Yes, certainly someone could suffer a stab wound like that and could go through the inferior vena cava, for example, uh, if it's that upper chest one, and that wouldn't incapacitate somebody. They could get up and move around quite a bit after that. Uh, Because it's, it's, it's hitting a major vein, Uh, inside the body. So you get low pressure bleeding and you would eventually um, drop your blood pressure and collapse. But um, you could keep going for quite some time with that sort of injury. It's more like the the aortic ones or the carotid artery ones are the ones which um, have a much faster pathway to death. I remember David Ranson explaining when we first met that when one carotid artery in the neck is severed and one isn't, 
That could indicate that someone stood behind the victim, holding the head to one side, a bit like slaughtering an animal. I asked him with an injury that severs a carotid artery, would the killer be covered in blood? If you have a carotid injury, unless for some reason you've got like the clothing up around it that's catching the blood or something like that, or it's shielded by the offender who's, who's collecting the blood, then an open carotid would usually, if it's opening and bleeding into the wound, while there's a good blood pressure, would expect to go a long way um, and spray quite a bit. What you've got here, however, of course, is you don't know how much our blood pressure dropped by the time that injury occurred, because we don't really have good timing of which injury came first, do we? Except I suppose we can say that if there's a suggestion she's stabbed on the bed and all the throats be cut on the bed, you'd expect a lot of blood there. One injury that David Ranson was interested in was the injury to Beth's mouth. A knife wound had cut through her upper lip and the front tooth behind that wound had been knocked out. It lay on the floor next to her arm. From the crime scene photos, it doesn't look like a broken bit of tooth, but rather the tooth and the root. While the cut to the mouth is documented in the pathologist's report, Dr Anderson doesn't refer to the missing tooth. There is clearly an incised type injury running across the front of the mouth overlying the area of the missing tooth. Has that occurred during the course of the of the attack while the person is still alive or not? Very difficult to be sure about that, actually. Like a lot of injuries, it's impossible to see when this injury occurred. There was no mention of blunt force trauma to the face, just the knife wounds. The tooth was found on the floor next to where Beth lay. Did that mean the stab wound occurred while she was lying on the floor? Or was it part of the initial attack in the bed and the tooth was flung onto the floor and she happened to come to rest near it? We will never know. Detective Rory O'Connor agrees. Yeah, but it might have been flung, but she mightn't have been there. She might have been over there near the bed. And when she's hit her, it might, it might have flung. And it's just coincidence. It's, you know, because it's next to the body doesn't mean that's where it's come out. You know what I mean? So it might, have just, it might be just coincidence that it's landed there. Um, they can't determine what the first strike was. It's timely to pause here and remember how Fergus suspected Vivian would take the Land Cruiser to Beth's so she would think it was him coming over to see her. On hearing the Land Cruiser, Beth would automatically think it was me and open the door. The two people who drove the Land Cruiser were either Beth or myself. So if the first wound was inflicted while Beth was in bed, presumably asleep, then it seems odd that Vivian would take the Land Cruiser for the effect and then not use it by driving loudly up the driveway past Beth's bedroom and waking her up. If it was the Land Cruiser at 3.20am that Margaret McPhee heard, she described it as loud and the light shone right into her bedroom window. Beth's friend and neighbour, Wendy Orchard, concurs. Where her room was, the bedroom, the um, car would have driven right past her bedroom window. Her bedroom window faced the driveway. So if she'd been in bed asleep, she would have heard the car come up. Or if even if she hadn't been in bed asleep, the, the windows 
like if she'd been in the lounge room or the kitchen, those windows faced the road and the kitchen window faced the road. So she would have seen the, the lights coming up the drive. And the, the house wasn't that far off the road. We might also have to imagine that Vivian went to Beth's armed with a knife, which means that she took one with her. It seems hard to fathom that she would have arrived at Beth's, crept up the driveway, happened to find the back door unlocked, then made her way in the dark to Beth's kitchen in the hope of finding a suitable weapon without disturbing her sleeping victim or the farm dog Minty barking, then creeping back into Beth's room undetected. When I spoke to him five years after Beth's murder, I asked homicide detective Rory O'Connor about the knife found next to the body. What about the knife that killed Beth? That actually killed Beth, yeah. Well, they didn't, nobody could positively identify it, but uh, said, yeah, it's the type of knife that, you know, it's the type of knife that we use, all right? But you couldn't get someone saying, that is the knife because I know it because of those nicks and grooves on it, all right? So would you assume that she went with the knife? Yep. It always struck me as odd that the attack occurred in Beth's bedroom. Had she left her doors unlocked through which an intruder gained access? Some friends told us that she was security conscious, while others said that in those days no one locked their doors. Did she have someone in her bedroom with her who attacked her? Did Vivian knock on the door to confront Beth about the affair? Did Beth open the door and let her in? And if she did let Vivian in, then why was she in bed when she was attacked? What light could Rory O'Connor shed on this? Well, we considered all that too because uh, the mere fact the door happened in the bedroom, I wouldn't consider that uh, uh, Beth would have talked to her in her own bedroom. They would have gone to the kitchen, they would have gone to the landroom, they would have gone to any other room. I mean, if you were wanted to talk to somebody, would you take them to your bedroom? You know, it's, uh, she may have gone there with just, just going to talk to her. We don't know. That's one of those things, you know, we, have, we can't talk to Vivian. And uh, something might have happened. Beth might have said, get out of it. You know, I had a knife herself. Who knows? You know what I mean? Because, you know, she might have been frightened. Because she might have just walked through the back door. So the back door's been left open on occasions. And perhaps it's as simple as that. Vivian did just walk through the back door. If, as the evidence suggests, Beth was attacked in bed, the blood staining the sheets is at chest height, so we could imagine that the two stab wounds to her chest occurred in bed, and perhaps some of the defence wounds she received occurred when she raised her arms up to try and ward off the knife blows. If she did receive the stab wounds to the chest at this point, the advantage the killer had in the initial attack was that Beth would have been weakened with a slow, low-pressure, fatal bleed, and the struggle was short in duration, but nonetheless violent. The question of how much blood is on the killer is an important one because of the transference of evidence. Aside from the piece of paper on the bed in the Cameron's spare room, scientific examination didn't find Beth's blood anywhere else outside her own bedroom. There was none in the bathroom where the killer had washed up. The blood found on the tap was human blood, but could not be typed any further. 
person soaked in blood doesn't get it anywhere else? Would David Ransom think there might be transference of blood into the Land Cruiser? Perhaps. Yeah, it could have had quite a lot. Particularly if they got hit by it, not from the inferior vena cava, that were only bleed inside at low pressure. But there's a lot of cutaneous injuries on the person, there's blood smearing all over arms, legs, abdomen, possible spray from the neck, although that could have all gone onto the offender rather into the environment. So they could have a lot of blood on them, a lot. I would have thought you might expect to see some blood there unless they really clean themselves up. But of course there's a caveat to that. Blood dries. In large quantities, it dries more slowly. The timings the police had, suggested by the phone call to Robin Dixon at 3am, the car heard by Mrs McPhee at 3.20am, then the car on Forest Avenue at 5, there was a window of perhaps between 3.30 and 5am. How much blood could dry in that time? How long were they there for? You know, there's a chance the blood dried off. I mean... You know, it, it would likely be on their front and if they're facing the person, there would be less on their back, less on their buttocks and back of thighs. So if they sat in a vehicle, they might not have that much blood did surface in contact with parts of the vehicle, for example. I mean, I'm just, you know, I mean, just saying, you know, if it's all over them, yes, you'd expect it to be left everywhere. But if it's just over their front and, and lap area, maybe not so much. There were so many questions that Wednesday as Dr Anderson performed the post-mortem examination on Beth Barnard. He documented most of her injuries, but his notes don't mention examining the area where the tooth was missing from or draw any conclusions as to whether the knife blow was the cause of its dislodgement. Unlike the movies, there is no way to tell the exact time of death. At any rate, Dr Anderson makes no such estimate at all of the time Beth died. In crime shows, I find it amusing when the forensic pathologist says that the time of death is something like between 1 and 1.15am. I've interviewed a couple of forensic pathologists over the years and one of them used to love saying, time of death, when was the victim seen last, what time is it now? Your time of death is sometime between then and now. I had a true crime fan's understanding of body temperature cooling to ambient room temperature, rigor mortis, the stiffening of limbs after death, and post-mortem lividity, where the blood settles in the lowest parts of the body in the hours after death. In stories, time of death is measured by these things. When I first interviewed Rory O'Connor, I naturally assumed that a time of death would have been ascertained. What was the time of death? They didn't do a... Can't do it. I mean, so I could say, yeah, within two hours, and try the body heat, etc. But this was how many, how many hours later? This was six hours later. Now, they might, be get a, they, might get a, they might be able to get it into a time span of three hours, but that's about it. How long does rigor mortis take? Well, a bit of, well it, it goes through a few stages. Um, the body gets stiff. Uh, probably after the first, depending on weather conditions, etc. Probably uh, it starts getting stiff as soon as they've been killed. Then it goes through what they call lividity, where all the blood just drains down the bottom part of the body, and then it starts getting, then it goes softer. You know, it's, uh, and it depends on the circumstances. And rigor mortis starts as soon as the person's dead. You know, and to get full rigor mortis depends on the, you know, 
the, the heater on or anything like that in the house. Now, normally, uh, you'd expect after six hours, they'd be still. And she was, uh, she was still, there was still rigging orders in the boat. Dr. Anderson concluded that Beth Barnard died of knife wounds in her chest and throat. He reported that the presence of extensive internal bleeding around the long stab wound into the chest indicated that the deceased was initially alive when this wound occurred. No similar conclusions could be made about the other wounds. After the post-mortem examination was over, while McFadden, Gates and Gamble looked on, Homicide Detective Rory O'Connor approached the body with his fingerprint kit. He prepared the ink pad and took the dead woman's cold hand in his own. He put each of her fingers awkwardly onto the black ink pad, trying to avoid the knife wounds, and rolled them individually onto paper. The doctor looked curiously at this procedure and O'Connor explained to him what he was doing. Her fingerprints are needed to differentiate between prints belonging to her at her house and those belonging to anyone else, maybe the killer. The doctor nodded. Detective Alan McFadden had one final question. Was Beth Barnard alive when the A was carved into her chest? The doctor shook his head. I can't say for certain whether she was alive then, but I think not. Anything else you can tell us? McFadden asked. The doctor looked at him with an air of sadness and said, only that prior to this attack, she was a healthy young woman with every chance of living till she was 80. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. They planted a rose in the garden in memory of Vivian It just wasn't there. We searched every centimetre according to the correct procedure and it just wasn't there.